right. Well, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks for taking time out of your weekend to come and worship with us and learn with us. And I'm just going to say, like, let's wake up, all right? Because I know it's rainy and it's dreary outside, and today would have been a really good day to just lay in bed. So thank you for being here. But I want to make sure we're awake, all right? So let's be ready to go, and we're going to jump right into our conversation today. Um, we are in a conversation we're calling Faith Over Fear. And so where we've been tracking through already this year is we've gone through the book of Luke, some of the book of Luke, right? Again, spoiler alert, we're not going to get through every verse in the book of Luke, but we're going to take the, the highlights and go. But we've been pretty much tracking with most of the way, just kind of going chronologically, and it's brought us to a space in Luke chapter 5 where we're seeing these interactions with Jesus. And different people are coming to him, and he's interacting with them, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And as they're doing that, they're having to overcome some fear or some hurdles or some things in life that they have to overcome in order to get to know and to rely on Jesus better. And this is at a moment in time where Jesus's ministry is really starting to take off. He has been baptized. He's gone into the wilderness. He started to call disciples. We're going to see him call another disciple today. And people are just coming to kind of figure out what's going on with Jesus. Like, we get information. People are traveling to hear about him. They want to know what's going on. People that are sick are coming to get well. People that are um, even possessed are coming. People are bringing them so they can have the demon cast out. Like, there, there is a buzz around Jesus at this point. And so people are just kind of showing up. And so his ministry is really starting to go. And as they get there, they're having to overcome this and kind of figure out what's going on with him. And they're deciding what they're going to do with Jesus. And as they show up and they kind of evaluate what's going on with him, they have to decide whether they're going to follow him or not. And the premise of our conversation over these last few weeks, we have one more week next week, is this, that fear is the number one reason we don't take our next step in following Jesus. And in all of these interactions and all throughout scripture, you see people get to know Jesus they have a conversation with him, or they just have an encounter with him, and they have to decide what they're going to do. And I would say that we do the same exact thing. And at some point in life, if you're a Jesus follower, you decided that going to, especially if you were like a little kid, when most of us decide to follow Jesus, really what we decided was going to heaven was better than going to hell, right? And what the reality of that was and how that was going to work out. And our, maybe our parents or our teachers or our pastors told us that Jesus loved us. And so we wanted to take that step. But here's what happens all along the way. We get asked whether we're going to take the next step or not, or Jesus leads us to a place where we're going to take the next step or not. And what does it take for us to actually take the next step? And at times what happens is I think fear of what that next step means takes over. And so the first week we talked about control, like needing to give up control and, and what the fear is in that. We all like to be in control of situations and make sure we're not the ones that are losing control or we don't want to give up too much of that. And so when we have to give up that control, we kind of freak out a little bit. I imagine it's kind of like for those of you that have taught a child to drive, right? You have them in the driver's seat and they are the one with the steering wheel and they are the one with the pedals and you can't, as much as you would want to, right, you can't actually stop the vehicle if they make a mistake. And so you give that kind of control maybe to Jesus and that freaks you out. And last week we talked about what people will say or what people will think. And so this week we're going to talk about Levi or Matthew and we're going to talk about him and then we're going to talk about another group of people. So here's where we're going to be. Luke chapter 5. We're going to dive in at, or sorry, verse 27. So Luke 5, verse 27, as always, verses are up on the screen, or if you'd like to turn there in your own Bible, 
or just scan the QR code on the back of those Next Steps cards, and that will take you to our follow-along page, where we'll have all the verses and all the notes there for you. So in Luke 5, starting in verse 27, 28, it says this, Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Verse 29 goes on. It says, Later, Levi had a banquet, held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. Verse 30, But the Pharisees and and the teachers of the law, religious law, complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, Why do you eat and drink with such scum? I love that verse. It's just so descriptive, right? Verse 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. So I want to pause and and talk about Levi for a minute, okay? Like I said, this, this is Levi, we would also know him as Matthew. So yes, if you're familiar with the scriptures, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, like that Matthew who then wrote the gospel of Matthew. This is who we're talking about. And so Jesus calls him as a disciple. And we, we don't get a lot from this interaction. All we know is Jesus was walking by the tax collector booth and there's Levi and Jesus looks at him and says, come follow me. Now here's again where I get into, like I wish we knew what the interaction was. Because I think there's times where the, the authors of the gospel just go, I have a lot to talk about. This is the crux of what we need, or, or this is the report I got, and I didn't get a lot of the interaction, but we know that this happened. But what was it that Levi had to look at and say, okay, I'm actually going to follow Jesus? And in some ways, this interaction is like the calling of the other disciples. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Peter and James and John. And we talked about how Jesus shows up and he's teaching on, he wants to teach on the, on the beach and he realizes there's too many people. So he asked Peter, like, can you push out in the boat a little bit for me? And Peter's like, okay, fine, like, I'll do that. And then he, sell, he tells Peter to fish, remember this? And so he does fish, even though he's been out all night. And he goes, I know when to fish. This is not the right time to fish, but I'll do it anyway. And so then at that moment when he gets all the fish and they realize they catch more fish than ever, Peter's eyes are open and he just kind of goes, okay, it's worth it. Like, I want to follow Jesus. And we don't have a lot of that interaction with Levi, but I want us to kind of understand the difference maybe between what happened in Levi's life and what happened in Peter's life. I talked about before Peter, Peter basically had just gone to default mode in life. Like at this point in time, you would just automatically take on kind of what your father's job was, okay? So today it would be like your dad opening a business, and you would be the one that would inherit that business, and you would keep going. Peter's dad fished. So guess what Peter knew how to do? He knew how to fish. And so he took up that role, and he took that job, and that was kind of, he had gotten married, and he was just going to fish. That was the rest of Peter's life. And so Jesus shows up, and there's something there that wasn't there before. Like he wanted to go after this. It was being called to follow a rabbi was an honor, was something that people wanted. And so when Jesus shows up, that's what he's going to chase. Here's the difference in Levi's life. Levi had chosen a very specific path in life and was in pursuit of something that was not really not encouraged in this time frame. I mean, that's really, that's really the nice way of saying it. To be a tax collector as a Jewish man meant that you were giving up respect from your people. That's really what it was, in the pursuit of a paycheck. So if you're not familiar, this is the way tax collectors worked, okay, really briefly. 
the Romans needed to collect the taxes, so they would recruit people to come collect the taxes. But here's what the tax collectors do. It wasn't quite like the IRS. Nobody even likes the IRS to begin with, but it really, it wasn't even, it was worse than that, okay? So they would, they would come, they would be at the booth, or they would knock at your door, and they would say, you owe X amount of dollars. Now, maybe you only owed Rome $10, but they could show up and say, you owe $50. And you'd say, I only owe 10 and they'd go, tough, I have a centurion over here who says otherwise, because they had the backing of the Roman government. So it was pay up, or you're going to jail, or you're going to, or you know, you get too far down that road. We've seen, they've seen crucifixions. Like, I don't want to get messing with the Roman government. So the tax collectors would show up and they could just make their own paycheck. This was the ultimate kind of like they're working for Rome, but they're working for themselves. They can say whatever they want. And so when you think about that, Levi as a Jewish man working for the Romans who nobody liked, but taking advantage of other Jewish people, he was a traitor. And he knew this choice. This wasn't something that was an accident. It's not like one day he just fell into, oh, I'm a tax collector now. No, this was, I'm actually making the choice that I'm going to give up the respect from my people in order to make a paycheck. That's why everybody else around them hated them. And he knew what he was taking on. And so he had chosen a way of life. He had chosen a direction to go. And he had chosen... To make that paycheck, like I said, over all things. And so when Jesus shows up at his booth, right, and just says, follow me, he was making a very distinct change in life. So here's what I want to ask. Okay, what did Levi face? What fear did Levi face maybe in taking this step? And one of the cool things is, I, as I was, um, two weeks ago, I was at uh, the youth retreat uh, that our youth group went on and other youth groups uh, in our fellowship and so I got to go on Saturday, and I um, sat, got to be a part of the session Saturday morning and be a part of worship. And uh, the speaker this year was one of my good friends. His name's Dane. And so I love listening to Dane preach. He's awesome. And he just planted a church down in Baltimore. And so I got to go hear him. And he was talking about this idea of what it means to follow Jesus on the narrow path. And I think it's very interesting, the verse that he talked about, and maybe you've been in church for a while, you know this passage, but guess who wrote this passage? It was Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, this is what it says. He was recording this from Jesus. It says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. When Matthew's at that tax collector booth and Jesus shows up, Matthew knows what path he was on. And he records it later. He says, the path that I chose was wide. Like, I knew where I was going. I had chosen completely. I was going down this path. I was forsaking. Like, tax collectors could not worship God. They were, they were out of the temple. They were just completely ostracized because of what they had done. He goes, I chose that path. And as he's listening to Jesus, he says, I need to write this down so that other people know. But he says, the highway to hell is broad. The kingdom is on the narrow, is a narrow gate. He remembers this. And so one of the things that Dane said, and I love that he said it this way as he was preaching that morning, that Saturday I was there, he says, the path to life is too narrow for all our stuff. He said, when we get on the narrow path, sometimes we want to take a bunch of stuff with us. It's only, it's only wide enough for us and Jesus. Like, that's the only thing we can choose. And so sometimes I think what happens is we get 
to this place where we go, I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to bring this stuff with me. And it's even stuff that may not even be bad. Like, it could be really good stuff. It could be the career, or it could be the desire to be married, or it could be the career for a certain home, or a certain business, or a certain whatever. Like, we've got those things, and, but sometimes those things get in the way. And they become the thing we chase more than others. And here's the first fear, I think, that's real. The, the denial of our desires is one of our greatest fears. Think about that for a minute. We live in a place called America where freedom is the big thing, right? We all enjoy that. We want that. We think that's fair. We think that's the best thing. We want people to have freedom. We want people, we want ourselves to have freedom. But think about what it means when you have to ultimately then choose to restrict yourself or someone decides to restrict you. How do you respond to that? We don't respond well to that. I don't respond well to that. If you give me a rule that I don't understand and I think is, is just stupid, like I shouldn't follow, it doesn't make any sense, it really frustrates me. Like that's one of the things, I, it drives me nuts. I think there would be other people in the room that would be that way too. And so when we get to the point where we, we have to deny our desires, that's one of the things we fear the most. If someone came along and said, you know, you're only allowed to do this, or you're only allowed to do that. You're only allowed to eat a certain food, or you're only allowed to drive a certain car, or you're only allowed to drive a certain thing, or do a certain thing. We would start to worry about what was going on in that situation. And in some level, okay, like level with me, some of this is what Scripture does. It takes our desires, and it helps us understand in what context are we going to allow those desires to exist. How much are we allowed to indulge in something? Or what's the parameters on what we're allowed to do? And in some of this, we have to say, okay, if I'm going to follow Scripture, if I'm going to pursue this path, I have to deny my desires. I can't just fulfill the desires exactly as I would want them to be fulfilled all the time. But at the same time, we want to work that as much as we can. And sometimes in life, when Jesus looks at us and says, this is the path you need to be on, and this is the place you need to go, we think, I think, in my heart and my mind, but do I want to give up that desire I'm pursuing? And here's, here's the reality, okay? If following Jesus hasn't cost you anything, you're probably doing it wrong. And I'm not even talking about bad stuff. But at times we have to choose what we're going to give up. When I was in high school, okay, I, I mean, you guys know this. If you've known me for 30 seconds, you know I love sports and all kinds of things that way. When I was growing up, I was eight years old. I started playing ice hockey, and I played ice hockey till I could not play ice hockey anymore every day if I could. And when I got to be 14, I had to make a decision. 14, interestingly enough, was also the time I knew I was called into full-time ministry. I can talk about that story another time, but that's when I knew. Really what it boiled down to was I realized that you could get paid to eat pizza and throw dodgeballs at kids and tell them about Jesus. And I was like, I want to do that, okay? I was a shallow 14-year-old, okay? I think we all were. But I realized that. But I also realized that my schedule in life needed to change, because the activities that involved ice hockey were, were early practices, late practices, games on Sundays, all kinds of stuff. And I started to realize if that's what I was going to do, I was missing youth group. I was missing church. And I had to decide which is more important to me. Now, I think God made that message very clear to me because I was still like five feet tall at 14 and playing against other middle schoolers who were very large and they were able to now hit me. So there was a level of that that was like, this is not so enjoyable anymore. 
Let me pursue Jesus instead. But I had to give up something. Now, if you know me, you know I didn't have to give that up forever, and I still get to play at times. But, but my, my priorities needed to shift. And I changed my schedule, and I had to figure out what that means. And there's been other times in life where things come up, and I have to go, I have to choose Jesus rather than choosing this. Or I have to choose the path Jesus has called me on instead of choosing this. So when we think about it, I would still say this is true. If following Jesus hasn't cost you anything, you're probably doing it wrong. Following Jesus is going to cost us something. It's a matter of what. And that's where a lot of times when we have conversations with people about following Jesus or about going to church or about religion, whatever that means, we look at that and we go, yeah, but I don't want to give up my desires. I don't want things to be on the table that Jesus might take away. When in reality, I think when we decide to follow Jesus, everything is on the table for Jesus to be able to change how he wants to in our lives. And for Matthew, I think this happened in three very specific areas. For Matthew, this meant his money, his community, and his future. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, His money is very easy to understand. Like I said, he was defining his own paycheck. Think about that. You just show up and tell people what to pay you, and they just do it. That was his lot in life at this moment, okay? Now, everybody hated him, but he was going to have money, and he had already chosen that. But in deciding to follow Jesus, he gave up that reality. So here's what I would say. If our philosophy of money or how we spend our money hasn't been turned over to Jesus— and it hasn't influenced the way we handle money, then we're probably doing it wrong, and we're not being obedient to Jesus in that area of our life. I don't know what that means for you. It means different things, because Jesus has given us, and God has blessed us in different ways. But if that's not the reality of what we, how we understand in our philosophy of money and how we get that, then we might be missing it. The other thing it influenced was his community. Here's what I know about Peter. Let's go back to that comparison for a minute, okay? Peter could go back to fishing. He did go back to fishing. Before Jesus restored him, where does Jesus find him? He's fishing. So when Peter gave up fishing to follow Jesus, there was always the chance that he could just go, oh, well, this didn't work out. I'm just going to go back and start fishing again. Dad will still have the boat. We'll still figure this out, okay? I don't know if that's the way it worked when you were a tax collector, I'm assuming that was a pretty specific role to jump into and out of. And once you jumped out of that role, it wasn't the easiest thing to come back. Plus, would you really want to go back? Like, you have to then take on everybody hating you again? Like, this was a very different thing. And when we think about his community, when we look at the verses uh, again later, he's th- he throws this party where Jesus shows up, and it's a bunch of tax collector friends. Well, Why? Because when you're a part of a group that everybody hates, you kind of stick together, don't you? So the community, the people he was going to be a part of was going to change. He wasn't going to be the one having those parties with those people anymore. He was going to be now following Jesus and building his community there. So say it this way. If Jesus hasn't influenced the people you're building relationships with, then maybe we're not being obedient in that area of life. Now, here's what I'm not saying. That all of a sudden we just cut off anybody that's not a, follow, that not a follower of Jesus and we only interact with people who are followers of Jesus. That's not the case because we know in this passage that's not what Jesus did. He still built relationship, relationships with people that didn't follow him yet. But this does define who we're going to 
build our closest relationships with. We talked about this last week with the man who was paralyzed. We want to surround ourselves with people who are going to carry us to Jesus. If we're not pursuing that kind of community, we're missing it. And sometimes that can be a thing that gets in the way. We have a way of life that we enjoy, and we're afraid that Jesus is going to say, or Jesus has said, that way of life needs to shift in order for you to be my effective follower of mine. And then he gave up this. He gave up his future. This one's a tough one. Like, think about this for a minute. Is your future, is my future in Jesus' hands, or is it in mine? So here's what I mean by that. We all have plans, probably, for where we want to be in the future. And it's logical, and it makes sense to pursue those things. But, is it through the filter of what Jesus wants for us more than what we want for us? Like, when we plan those things, is it based on who Jesus is or who we are? When Matthew decided this, he said, I don't know what's coming in the future. I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm going to pick up and I'm, I'm going to go. So, so here's the thing, okay? The overall idea, because we're going we're gonna to shift gears in a minute. We're going to talk about a different group of people, but I don't want to lose like the tension that I can like feel us in right now. Have we turned these things over to Jesus? Or are we afraid in keeping our own blueprint for our own life and not allowing Jesus to have the ability to erase and move lines in our bank accounts, in our community, in our future? Because if we're not allowing Jesus to have the pencil and being able to erase and change things and guide us in a direction, we're not being as obedient to Jesus as we think we are. And if that's not the case, we're missing it. Now, Let's shift gears a little bit, because I want to talk about another group of people and a different little bit idea. As Jesus, after Jesus has this interaction with Levi, he throws this party. And Jesus is there as the guest of honor, and he's surrounded by other tax collectors and, and people that the Pharisees don't like. And so when the Pharisees show up in verse 30, it says, But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Verse 31, 32, Jesus answered them, Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who think they are sinners and need to repent. So I think the second group of people here who we've talked about like a little bit in these stories are the Pharisees. And I think the Pharisees in these stories, they're afraid too. Because Jesus is showing up and he's able to do some things that they don't really see very often. And he's doing things, and people are getting really excited about him, and they don't know what to do with him. Like, they, they can tell that there's something there, but he's not following all the rules. People are flocking to him and not them, and they're really trying to figure this out. And so they show up, and they start to talk smack a little bit and try and figure this out. So what fear did the Pharisees have to face? Here's another question. I got a few questions in a row here. Here's the second question. Who are the people I see or you see as scum? That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a word, right? Like if you had to look at somebody and say they are scum, what would that take? Now, you might have had somebody pop into your brain, okay? Like it might have happened. 
But who are the people that when you see them and you interact with them or you process things with them or you see them post things on Facebook, okay, you automatically just, there's almost like a visceral response, okay? I'll be honest. There's people that I'll see interact with different things or say things or whatever, and I want to just like yell things, right? When they, when they say something or they do something, okay? It's like, it's like that kind of thing. Like, like you have a physical, almost physical response when you see that person or when you process with people. And hopefully it's people that we actually believe are wrong or they've done wrong things, okay? Or they have a worldview that is actually false and they're leveraging it against other people, okay? We can see sin, and say, I have a visceral response when someone else is leading someone into sin, okay? That's a good thing. But then here's the next question. This is where I think it gets really interesting in this story with Jesus. Am I willing to believe Jesus would party with those people? Listen, we hear that, and it's like, even when I wrote this down, I was like, ah, is that right? But then, like, think about the story. They hated these people, the tax collectors, They had chosen to not be welcome in worshiping God in order to make a paycheck. And then would come to other people and say, you owe me more money than I'm supposed to have so that I could pocket the rest. Okay? They were scum. I mean, they were. And yet, one of them says, Jesus, will you come be the guest of honor at my party with other tax collectors? And he says, yes. Like, many of us would look at that like the Pharisees did and go, Jesus, you're not supposed to be there. Like, that's not the Jesus I know, okay? Put this in, like, real category, right? Would we believe that Jesus would be invited and be the guest of honor at a drag club? Like, we think about that and we go, no. But then we look at this story and I go, maybe. Like, I don't know what to do with that as a Christian, like, there's tension here that we don't think about if we don't, like, dive into this minute. And when I say party with them, I don't mean, like, he's getting drunk and he's doing all that. But, but he, he's the guy who, like, they invited and he wants to talk to them and get to know them. And yet we might look at people and go, I would never go in a million, within a million miles of that person. And yet maybe Jesus would. Here's, here's another fear I think we have. I think the people Jesus might let into heaven is one of our greatest fears. Here's a different way to think about that. Are we going to be okay? I mean, I know we'll have to be okay, but like, are we going to be okay if we get to heaven and it doesn't look like our church? Like, there's people there that don't look like us. There's people there that like other kinds of music as us. There's people there who voted differently than us, right? There's other people that, do, that think differently. Are we, like, what's our response to that? Or are we under, this, under a th- thought that maybe it's just going to look like what I want or what I think or what I know? That's not the case. And when Jesus comes along and, and he interacts with these people, the Pharisees freak out because they don't like the fact that people that don't follow the same rules, that have, have been literal traitors and chosen money over God, might actually turn and decide to follow Jesus. They can't handle it. And yet Paul helps us walk through this. He really lays this out well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Starting in verse 15, this is what it says. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. 
This is what Paul says. Now, Paul killed Christians. We can all read that if we want to be really self-righteous and be like, yeah, you should feel that way, Paul, because you killed people. But the idea is we should be saying that about ourselves too. Like Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am as awful as anybody else, if not worse. And he goes on and says why in verse 16. It says, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. He goes, people see me and they see I follow Jesus. It's so other people could come and follow Jesus. That's true of us too. Like we, we love to hide our shortcomings. It's, it's natural. It's human nature to hide those things. But when we're honest with what Jesus saved us from, other people can then see that and say Jesus could save us from that, save them from that too. Tim Keller said it this way. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We, we know what's going on inside of us. And the persona we want is that we're not that bad. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know how bad we are. But then the reality is that we are also so very loved. And I would just say it this way. We, we love to lie to ourselves, and here's the lie that we like to tell ourselves. Um, I'm easier for Jesus to love than that person. Like, it makes me feel better when somebody else does something, and I'm like, I'm not that bad. Makes me feel good, right? But really, that thought maybe makes me worse than that person. Because I'm just evaluating them and saying, well, I'm better than you. And so here's the problem with fear. Facing the truth, that truth, can be scary. That, that I might be the person that when Jesus shows up and ministers to me, or builds a relationship with me, somebody else is looking at me and going, Jesus, you're not supposed to be with that person. In fact, if we go back to Peter for a minute, that's Peter's response when all those fish come into the boat. He looks at Jesus and goes, I'm not good enough for you to be here right now. And while that response was true, Jesus says, no, I love you so much, you can't afford for me not to be here right now. And that's what Jesus was saying when he's interacting with those tax collectors. That's what Jesus says to people who know Jesus. What did he say? I've come for the people that know they need a doctor, not for the people that are going to go through life and say, I'm good enough. I don't need you. That's where he finds himself. And I would say it this way. Only when I see myself through Jesus' eyes can I truly understand who I am. Jesus sees us for all we are, all the sin that we do, but he also sees us as worth loving. And that's where we find that's why we find people that need Jesus coming to Jesus, why we came to Jesus. It's why we're willing to maybe take that next step even when we're feel, fearful of what that might mean. There's one more episode, in, and we're going to fast forward in Luke to Luke 7, um, where this interaction kind of takes place, and, and the Pharisees kind of have to figure out what to do with it. And I think it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus really means when this, this kind of situation happens. In Luke 7, Verses, starting in verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive 
perfume. Now, time out. I want to recognize one thing, too, because I think this is very important. Jesus gets invited to the tax collector's house. He goes to dinner. Jesus gets invited to the Pharisee's house. He goes to dinner. So it's not an either-or conversation. It's like, let's have conversation with everybody, okay? It doesn't mean that we exclude people from the conversation. It means we invite both people in the conversation. It just means when we have interactions with certain people, we handle them differently. Now, I also want to mention that when this woman shows up, it says an expensive perfume, okay? This was her bank account. Think about it that way. This woman's a prostitute. That's her job. When you were in this culture, if you didn't have a husband or a male figure in your life to provide for you because women didn't typically work, you were, you were not in good shape. You needed a man. It's unfortunate. You needed someone, a man to help provide for you. And if you didn't have that, you were in trouble. It's the story of Ruth, okay? This was her insurance. Like, this was how she would have money later in life. This is what she brings to the party. In verse 38, the story goes on. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Verse 39, when the Pharisees who had, Pharisee who had invited, invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. So we get this over and over again. We do this with Jesus too. If Jesus really was blank, if he's really God, if he's really a prophet, if he's really good, if he can really help me, if he can, he'll live up to my standards. What's Jesus' response to this? He reads his mind. It says, then Jesus answered, the, answered his thoughts. That would be terrifying. You just, you have this bad thought about somebody and they just look at you and go, I have an answer for you. <laughs> freak me out. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Verses 41 42. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Verse 43. Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he canceled the larger debt, for whom he canceled the larger debt. That is right, Jesus said. Now this, this conversation goes on a bit longer. We're not going to read the whole thing. But he looks at the woman. He tells her that her sins are forgiven. Before he says that, though, he, as he's talking to Simon, he goes, this woman, he goes, whose sins are many. So in front of the crowd that's there, he says, I know what this woman has done. I'm not an idiot. Okay, but there's forgiveness for all of this. And so Jesus, in these interactions, he's not saying that we're just going to overlook the sin that we so viscerally respond to, but he is saying that when someone comes and says, I'm, I'm now giving my life to Jesus, he goes, there's forgiveness for everybody that will do that. And when she shows up, and again, this is kind of an awkward situation, right? She shows up, she's like crying and just like pouring things on his feet while they're trying to have dinner. It's a weird interaction, okay? But again, she's showing up with everything of value she has. Coming into a room where she knows she's not welcome. Into a space where she knows she's going to be told, get out, why are you here? 
And she says, even through all of that, I'm going to lay everything I have at Jesus' feet. That's the response. Through the fear, through the ridicule, like Levi, she says, I'm going to, this is going to impact my money. It's going to impact my community. It's going to impact my future. And I don't know what's going to happen after this, but I'm going to pursue Jesus no matter what it's no matter what it costs. Think about that phrase for a minute. I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs. We love to sing that. We love to say that. But does it actually happen? Or is there something that I could put, like if I had an imaginary box here and I said, it's going to, something from your life. And I say, it's, you can follow Jesus. It's going to cost you this. Like think about this for a minute. What would it be? What would it be if, if Jesus came to you and said, you can follow me, but it's going to cost you what? What would stop you from still continuing to follow him? Would it be our health? Would it be our dreams? Would it be our home? Would it be our bank account? Would it, what would it be? What would stop us? And are we willing to say, I'm going to give Jesus dominion over that? As Levi did. As this woman did. As the Pharisees did not. You're gonna, you can follow me, but guess what? That means you're going to have to be a missionary to X person. Okay, Jesus, you can take whatever you want, but if I have to interact with those people, I'm not doing it. Is that the way we respond? Here's what I think happens. Let's put these two ideas together, okay? So, influencing our our money, our community, our future, and recognizing that everybody that gets to follow Jesus doesn't look like us. Like, Jesus came for all people. When we think about that in our own terms, when we get to define what our life looks like and who gets to interact with us completely, like, we just take that. It's us building our own version of the world. And we can do that. We can choose who we're going to interact with, where we're going to go, what we're going to do, what we're going to pursue. We can build all of that. The problem is, like when we go back to, the narrow way is only so wide. And what that means is, those, that idea of the kingdom I'm building has to go away if I'm going to follow Jesus instead. So here's the way I think about this. Faith over fear means giving up your version or my version of the kingdom for his. The kingdom of God is not going to look like anything we could design or dream up. It's his kingdom. And so when he says, I want to fill it with tax collectors, he gets to do that. When he says he wants to come after the lost people, he gets to do that. And the problem comes when we start to say, oh, thank goodness that's not me. Because it is. When we include ourselves in that, like Paul did, we recognize there's no one that's better than us, or worse than us. Like, we, we're the worst. <laughs> like, we need Jesus just as much as anyone else. And are we willing to give up our version of the kingdom for his? So here's the question, okay? Here's two questions. Number one, what do you need to give up? Number two, who do you need to love? If there's something in life that is stopping you from taking that next step in following Jesus, it's got to go. And it may not even mean forever. It might just mean for a season. But Jesus gets to define that, not you. 
So it's kind of like if you go on a diet, you're like, I'm, I'm only going to, or you're going to go through Lent, or you're going to go through, like, I can give this thing up for 40 days, and that's it. Like, as soon as that 40 days are up, I'm jumping back in. It's not the way it works with Jesus. Like, if he says give something up because it's better for you not to have it, like we, we got to just give it up. The second question, who do you, who do you need to love? Like, this is, this is kind of deep, so, like, I want to say it right, but, like, your view of somebody else could be keeping you from following Jesus. The way you see somebody else or the way you're interacting with somebody else could be stopping you from following Jesus. We don't think about that a lot. But if that's happening, you've got to fix that relationship or you've got to build that relationship or you've got to enter that space. And what does that mean? I don't know what it means for all of us. I just know we get really scared when Jesus takes us down a path that we don't recognize, that we don't envision ourselves going down. And yet, when we follow that path, it's the best thing we could ever do because he takes care of it all. And one day, I mean, you think about it, let's go back to Levi for just a second. At one point, Jesus died right? And Levi had to think, maybe I should have just stayed in that stinking booth. Maybe that would have been better. He probably could have done the math. I'd have more money. I'd have less problems. (laughs) But then Jesus came back. It's like, there could be a minute where you're like, Jesus is calling me to say, like, I'm going to do it. And you, like, it just doesn't click right away, maybe. Or like, you got to see something happen. You got to, like, trust him. Say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to walk down that path. I'm going to do it. But be willing to say, I'm going to give up my version of the kingdom in order to pursue where Jesus is leading me. And don't let fear stop us from going to that place. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, I can't get past uh, in reading these different scriptures how much tension must have been in these rooms or at those times. A A leper shows up in a crowd and everybody wants Jesus to stay away and Jesus walks over and touches the guy. Freaking people out. There's, there's a house and people start ripping the roof off of it and they lower a man down in the middle And everybody's saying, why are these people just ripping the roof apart? And Jesus is looking at this guy and looking at his friends that are ripping the roof apart and saying, your sins are forgiven because of the faith of your friends. And then we see these interactions where Jesus stops at a tax collector's booth and all the disciples or people following him must have just said, why is he stopping here? And then there's a woman who steps into the house of a Pharisee and starts interacting with Jesus and people saying, He must not know. He must not be a prophet. And in those moments, you read their minds and said, I have an answer for you. And God, I pray that we would not be the ones who are sitting back and saying, Jesus, you don't belong there. Because it doesn't match what my version of Jesus is. But I pray that we would be the ones willing to say, I'm going to pursue Jesus no matter what it costs me, whether that's my bank account, whether it's the community I build, whether it's my future and what dreams I have. And 
Jesus, I know that you give us those desires for a reason and you want us to pursue those things for a reason, but I pray that they would be given to you first. I pray that for us as a church too. And I ask that as we process what it means to give you everything, to not hold anything back, to not fear where you're going to take us, that we would lean into that strongly. And I even pray for if there are people we see as scum who you're saying, I love those people, that you would make that change in our hearts, that we would not be so distant from those who need you. God, I pray that you would give us the strength and give us the faith to make those changes uh, in our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name, amen.